0: Brought to you by North Memorial Health, where customers are treated like family. That means a big smile when you walk in the door and making sure your visit is as pleasant as possible. It's just like your family treats you. Find your healthy family at northmemorial.com slash family. Welcome to another episode of the Access Vikings podcast. My name is Andrew Kramer, joined once again by Ben Gessling via Zoom. Hi, Ben. Hey, Andrew. We saw each other in person yesterday,
1: and now we're back on Zoom, but uh, we were able to... I
0: suppose if we planned ahead, we would have had to do it outside, but we could have done this even three-dimensionally. So we're we heading back towards that. <laughs> back to normalcy. That, that's what the return to normalcy, that's what everybody means when they talk about that, is, is us doing our podcasts in person once again. Maybe we'll even get the uh, better audio of having our in-person soundboard and, and getting all that squared away too one day. Um, we got a lot to talk about, though, with the Vikings OTAs beginning this week. They wrapped up their third and final session for the week on Wednesday. We got to see it. So we're going to talk about what we saw, who we didn't see, uh, certainly who we did see as well. And then, um, yeah, just their attendance, the adjustments to the OTAs with the union, uh, initially advising players not to show up and then players across the league, including in Minnesota, showed up in droves. And so (laughs) we'll get we'll get to all that. Uh, First, though, I want to talk about um, the Panthers released a video This morning, Uh, they call it their draft confidential series. It was a half hour video kind of detailing, um, really getting in depth and in the the front office rooms, in the draft room, um, talking about the players they like, talking about the players they didn't like, the possible trades. And the video actually begins with a call from Minnesota trying to move up from number 14 to number 8. And it basically starts off with the offer and saying, oh, they want to, they want to give us number 90. They want to give us number 143. Those two picks, obviously a third and a late fourth rounder to move up from 14 to eight. And that was a quick no. And even at one point, Panthers owner, David Tepper says, don't call or don't have them call us back with negative points, meaning a bad trade offer like that. Um, ben, I want to get your thoughts on this, but my initial thought was the Vikings seem to be, and Rick Spielman and Rob Brzezinski, they seem to be the fantasy GMs who just send out a bunch of trad bad trade offers to see who bites because 90 and 143 to move up six spots, that's, that's an offer that would get a quick no as it did from Carolina.
1: So when we look at the points on this, um, I'm just trying to do – so it was basically – according to most of the trade charts, you give up 300 points, the Panthers would, to move back six spots. And 90 is worth 140, and 143 is worth uh, 34 and a half. So, yeah, you're basically – you you give back 124 and a half points to move up six spots. So, it would have been a net of, like, 175 points in the Vikings' favor. Now, there's different variations of the trade chart, but – Uh, they didn't make it clear specifically on the video that the tell them not to call us back with negative points was directed at the Vikings. though that ran fairly quickly after the Vikings, you know, the editing with these things sometimes is you have to keep that in mind, but it would mesh up with that idea. And yes, the fantasy football thing is true. Shout out to the guys in my league that do that all the time, (laughs) which is my favorite thing ever because they they'll try to do some stuff like, you know, some player that like, I had like three offers for Austin Eckler last year and, you know, trying to give up a bunch. And it's like, guys, do you know what I do for a living? I mean, you do, because if you beat me, you like to tell me all about it, but maybe not the dumb trade offers. Cause I'm following this stuff on a daily basis. And I'm probably not going to get swindled by that. Anyway, just wanted to rip any of the guys in my fantasy football league that are listening to this. Um, the, yes, the, the, the offer is, in keeping i think with the way the vikings have played a lot of this stuff where they don't want to give up a lot it tells you that all of the talk we heard and we heard a lot of it about them moving up and i get it it's it's a juicy thing to talk about the possibility that they were trying to move up and they were gonna do all these different things there's a difference between we would move up in this scenario when it still works out great for us and we are going to move heaven and earth to move up to get the guy that we have to have. And if this is the case and this was the type of offer they were peddling to move up to 10 or to 11 or you know whether they wanted Slater or Sewell or whether they wanted Justin Fields, it's probably not worth getting as excited about it as some people have, if these are the types of offers they were putting out there, because it doesn't have the, the appearance of being taken seriously when the Panthers are saying, no, we're not doing that. And why, why would they say otherwise? It tells you that it's a, well, okay, we're going to throw a line out here. And if you are desperate to move back and you have nothing else, then maybe you take it, but yeah, it, it's a little bit in the sense of we're trying to just catch you napping, and which seems a little odd because you're not going to catch a lot of teams napping. And um yes, they try to move up. And we've we've heard that, we've said that, but there was a lot of hedging, specifically in the case of Justin Fields, about how much do they want to give up to get him? Because as you and I have both heard, they they liked Kellen Mond a lot and they were concerned about some of the other things with epilepsy with fields I've heard was, was a concern and whether it should be or not is a, a different question, but yeah, the, the idea that they were going to just stop at nothing to get up and get what they wanted is probably overcooked.
0: Yeah. Or the fact that let's say it was for um, one of the offensive linemen. Sewell would have been gone by then. Um, Cause obviously he ended up going, yeah, he went at seven when at seven to the Detroit lions. So if it was for Rashawn Slater, or if it was for the quarterback, they obviously didn't have much of a difference in grade, or that big of a difference in grade between a um, Slater and a Darisaw, or a Fields and a Mont, as we talked about. If you really think Kellen Mont, or excuse me, J- Justin Fields, was clear and cut the last available best quarterback, you had to have them kind of thing. You're not offering a third and a fourth to jump up six spots. And in that video too, one of the edited clips is. Um, a Panthers front office guy saying they're not going to offer their next year's one. So clearly there was a counter of, well, give us a 2020, t- one. And we would consider moving uh, back for that. And the Vikings said a quick, no. So if you're not willing to move uh, a first round pick for what you might view as your franchise quarterback, you clearly don't view him that much in high regard to do so. So I thought that was interesting. And then Ben, you had said, you know, about in terms of swindling teams, we do have evidence. And, and we hear every year from the Vikings about how, uh, well, we, we call every team. We reach out to every team. We, we, move, we look, uh, assess trade-up options, trade-back options. Well, you got to do that if you're making these kind of offers. And we have evidence in, in the deals that they have made that they do find suckers in terms of swindling some of these things. Look at what they did with the Jets and so moving back yeah. from 14 to 23. They end up getting those two third-round picks. They ended up dealing 143, the pick they dangled to Carolina, with 14 to give to New York in exchange for 23, 66, and 86. I believe that on the trade value chart is a win for Minnesota. Last last year in 2020 was one of the deals that they got a heck of a steal from the New Orleans Saints, where I remember this pick where they traded back from 105 to 130. It's a 25-pick drop, and they ended up picking up a 5th, a 6th, and a 7th. They ended up getting four picks for a third. That's a deal that... I I think only the Saints and Sean Payton would have made and Mickey Loomis to be able to do that kind of a trade. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense for any other team. So if if you're the Vikings, you're throwing all these offers out, saying, hey, who's going to bite? Who's going to bite? And eventually you are going to find, whether it's the Jets, it's the Saints, you're going to find somebody as they did. And in this case, though, moving up into the top ten, you might not find many suckers in the top 10 willing to do that. That certainly seemed to be the case. But I guess we do have evidence of them. They find a sucker every now and then, and they do end up with some good deals. But um, clearly, they did not like anybody in the top 10 enough to offer a real, uh, a real offer to try to move up into that range. I found that very interesting and great insight, honestly, from the Panthers, uh, their media department. And that, that comes from, too, their leadership and being unafraid to be like, Hey, we're going to be transparent with our fan base. We're going to show you inside the draft room. That video, it's about an hour long, or no, half hour long, excuse me. And it goes into, um, like we talked about before the podcast, it goes into who they liked, the, the clusters of players they liked in the top 10. It goes into a lot of other things that you're, insight you're just not going to get from front offices that are a lot more tight-lipped and a lot more worried about just letting any kind of information out and kudos to the Panthers for being okay to do that. And it makes their fan base that much more informed. Um, and we end up getting that little bit of insight from the Vikings perspective. I'm sure Carolina. the Vikings
1: love that that's out there. By the way, <laughs> yeah, through Carolina. I'm sure they're <laughs> thrilled that that is out there.
0: And now yeah. we should
1: point out that the video that the, the guy from the Panthers front office did say in the video, he said 90 and 43, they obviously didn't have pick 43. That would have been a second rounder. I think the 49ers had possession of it. Um, I, he, I, we have to assume he meant 143. That makes more sense than some scenario where they already had a trade worked out with the 49ers for number 43 that they were then dangling. Uh, that, yeah, that doesn't quite add up. So, yes, we know it says 43, not 143, but you could you could probably follow the logic and say that he probably meant 143.
0: And the order that they set it in, they, the guy says they're offering yes. 90 and 43. If you're offering 43, usually you, you lead with that. You would lead with 43. <laughs> right, right. You go in, yes. in order numerically. So, anyways, yes. um, that just had to be kind of what the deal was. And it was an interesting insight into the Vikings' attempts to try to move up, or lack thereof, in terms of attempts. Um, all right, Ben. Let's talk about OTAs. We were out there on Wednesday. We were seeing uh, quite a few players show up. We knew the Vikings were going to have strong attendance. On our last podcast, we talked about how a young roster, workout bonuses, all of these things are going to be reasons why the Vikings would probably have strong attendance. And we get out there and we see basically, I think my count was 82 of the 87 players on the roster were there. And we had heard that basically only two players in Daniil Hunter and Jeff Gladney um, have not been there for all three days. Now, Gladney's obviously dealing with a court case in Texas facing a possible felony assault charge and Daniel Hunter is not showing up amid um, what I would say amid speculation that he's unhappy with his contract. Cause we have not heard from Daniel straight about any kind of discord he has with the team. Um, we have only got the report that came from NFL network back in October that he wanted to be the highest paid defender in the NFL or get traded. We have since heard Rick Spielman say that hasn't been communicated to me. Uh, we're looking forward to getting him here. But Ben, the Vikings don't have any indication of when Daniel's going to show up.
1: Yeah, and we have heard that a lot of these things are are accurate in terms of his desire for a new contract and his desire to be much more highly compensated than he is. But whether this is going to keep him out of Minnesota for the year, I, I think is a, a different question. I I really don't think that you should sound the alarm on any of that until he's doing things like missing mandatory mini camp and then taking the fines that are no longer refundable. It used to be in the old CBA that you could find somebody for missing a mini camp and then you get the deal done and then everybody makes nice and says ah well you know well we'll we'll forget about that. We understand, we got the deal done and, and everything's great. Now, those fines are not refundable. So you miss start missing out on real money in addition to your workout bonus which i think is $100,000. So once he skips minicamp, I think, then you start to say, okay, this is this is much more serious. But the missing the voluntary part over a $100,000 when you are trying to make a bet that you're hoping will land you millions more in a year, it probably makes sense. So um I know talking to a couple of people with the Vikings yesterday, they're kind of looking at this like, Okay, but you you don't have a ton of leverage. You don't have anything other than look at the pass rush last year and look how bad it was. And and uh, you know you can decide for yourselves if you want to do it without me again. But the fact that he's got three years left on his deal, the fact that he's coming off a neck injury, which is a, a as we've said, it's not a hamstring, it's not a broken toe, it's something that is much more serious and he's looked great. You can share more of that from what you've talked about with his trainers, but um, he's not operating from a place of the most leverage, at least as the Vikings see it. I think they're looking at it a little bit as, okay, um, you can play it this way if you want, but it's it's an odd time to do it. And it's a guy that has not um, ever really rocked the boat. I mean, he's, he's had this reputation of no drama. I'm here to get to work. And I get it. Players need to maximize their leverage. I I don't begrudge players for doing that because teams will drop you in a second if they have the opportunity to do so or if they find somebody cheaper or whatever. So you got to do what you got to do. But it does come at the cost, I think, of some fans saying, well, hang on. Why aren't you showing up and playing on your contract? So there's a little bit of a PR cost as well for, for him, I think.
0: Yeah. And we asked, asked Anthony Barr about that, um, about Daniel yesterday. Those guys are pretty tight. Um, they do share trainers. They uh, work out together in the off season. I don't, I don't know if they did this off season, but they have in the past and Anthony had said, um, I know he's working, I know he's doing well, but he's going about this the way he thinks he needs to. And we support him a hundred percent. Um, but whenever he's ready to get back to work, Anthony said, you know, we're going to welcome him with open arms and, you know, that's how the Vikings got to view it because they're there basically in full, except for him. And if Jeff Gladney wasn't dealing with this legal situation, didn't put himself in this situation, allegedly, um, they would be there. Basically, everybody would be there but him. And with that said, Daniel Hunter's still working, he's still putting in the work. I did talk to one of his trainers, Rashad Whitfield, a Houston-based trainer that works out a few Vikings players, including Daniel. And he had said basically that Daniil's at full strength. We didn't do too much in the way of bending work as they call it, which is basically just kind of your torso twisting activities, the kind of stuff in terms of pass rushing work. Um, They didn't do too much in terms of trying to work that spine a whole lot, but he said, we did a little bit of it. And he looked, he moved fine. He, he looked at what, again, what Whitfield said was full strength. Um, He shared some photos with me, (laughs) any photos of Daniil Hunter make him look like he's at full strength. So Um, The guy's clearly still in the weight room, clearly still working out, appears to be recovering fine seven months removed from this neck surgery. But as you said, Ben, the Vikings would certainly like to see that in their building. They would like to see that with their medical staff. They would like to see that with their coaches. And if you are trying to angle for a new contract, there is the, the side of things of saying, okay, well, come to work, like do the work. Like the Vikings have shown they will rip up a contract and redo it for the right kinds of players that show up and do the things. Look at Adam. Thielen. Everybody. Yeah. Adam Thielen's contract. Adam Thielen came to work. He was underpaid until he wasn't. And then they decided to redo his deal and, and pay him. And so, and Ben, you've reported in the past that it's not like the Vikings are going to get into um, any kind of, money fight over him. They want to make him happy. And it's going to be one of those things where how can they make that work financially with their books, with their outlook long-term because Daniil is only the 17th highest paid defensive end by yearly average. And let's keep in mind the, the market was reset just weeks before Daniel's neck injury in August last year, when Joey Bosa got a, a deal that was 27 million per season. Yep. Um, Daniel on yearly average makes just over half that at 14.4 million per season. And that was a deal signed in 2018. Um, he's outperformed that every step of the way since then. So he has every right to be like, hey, let's let's kind of work this out. Um, and if the Vikings are willing to do that, I think him showing up and being there would go a long way. Now, as you said, though, this is voluntary. He's giving up a $100,000 workout bonus if he skips all of these OTAs. And I believe he just has to skip a certain percentage of them. Um, and so at this point, you're right. Why, If you're him, you're thinking, why risk that kind of stuff? Um, why risk a potential re-injury or anything like that for things that are voluntary? And we might end up seeing him show up June 15th, which is their first mandatory practice. They'll have three mandatory practices in the middle of June before they break for for training camp in late July. And so until he misses anything that's mandatory, until the the team has to start fining him for missing that, because these are mandatory fines now, as you said, under the new CBA, the owners really wanted to limit holdouts. So what they did was they made these fines. It used to be team discretion where you can fine a guy, but then when you kind of do a deal on the back end, you can give him his money back. Um, that's not the case anymore. Those fines have to be taken out of the player's pocket and there is no kind of, here, we'll just give it back to you under the table. Um, so he's going to be in a position here where he's going to run into some NFL rules that don't really allow much leeway for how the team can act and they're going to have to start fining him if he doesn't show up.
1: Yeah, they are. And it's it's interesting because <laughs> you mentioned Adam Thielen who, when he did that deal, had zero leverage. I mean, other than he's minnesotan but he didn't have much else and it was basically a a position where you'd already paid stefan diggs so they were saying even with two years left in your deal even though you're older than stefan diggs and even though you really don't have a leg to stand on here we're going to do it because we like you we want to keep you happy and we value what you mean to this team so yes we'll do it and yes we'll pay you more than stefan diggs which i don't think helped in the relationship with Stephon Diggs at the time. But that aside, they did it with Dylan. The other one that comes to mind a little bit is Dalvin Cook. And Dalvin Cook was in the last year of his deal, but Dalvin Cook is also a running back. And Dalvin Cook showed up to training camp on time, despite bluster to the contrary that he might not. He skipped the end of the voluntary offseason program, but that was virtual and it was kind of like skipping this. When he needed to show up he showed up because there was no mini camp last year. And the first day of training camp was really kind of that gut check point. And he was there. So he said, I'm going to show up. I'm going to get to work. And I'm going to let business handle business, I think, is how he put it. And it did. They ended up paying him to make him one of the highest paid running backs in the league at a position where a lot of teams are now saying we don't need to spend that kind of money. So they have shown that if they value what you do, It doesn't necessarily matter where you're at in your deal. It doesn't matter what position it is. They will keep you around. And by all accounts, from Andre Patterson to Mike Zimmer to the front office, people in that building love Daniil Hunter. And they love the way he goes about his job. They love, obviously, the production on the field. From what I've heard, they they basically said, we don't want a holdout to be the type of look that that kid would have in public. And so I do think that thought process for them is, yeah, we got to figure out how it looks because the cap next year is, I think the NFL announced or leaked out through its rights holders yesterday that it'll go up to 208 million as a ceiling next year. That doesn't give them a ton of room to play with. They're they're still only around – like $14 million of cap space given all the money that they pushed into future years, but you can figure that out. I mean, you'd figure out a way to do the deal that probably would reduce his cap hit and push some of it into the future. And then all that new TV money hits and you're fine. So yeah, I, I, I think it's doable for them to to get it done. I, I it would lend to the theory that if you show up and they can see you, like you said, and get their hands on you and get their eyes on you, that, eventually you'll get what you want.
0: Yeah. And especially coming off next, next surgery. I mean, that's, that's something it was obviously the herniated disc that he had repaired to see, does he have the full feeling and strength in his arms again, you know, coming off that. Cause you hear medical professionals talk about one of the biggest things is off that kind of injury is the nerve issues of, are there any nerve issues, any lasting stuff to see him would go a long way. You would think with the Vikings and it all depends on kind of Yeah. What, what are his demands? Is it what was reported by NFL network in October that if he wants to reset the market, that might be a a tough bridge to gap. If we're talking about getting paid um, 27 plus million dollars a year, getting quarterback money almost with what these uh, NFL defensive ends. And I'm not saying he's not worth it. I'm just saying that that's a, a bridge that's really far from where he's currently at. So we'll have to see how that ends up going and what kind of, um, Demands he's actually making because again we have not heard from Daniel, and that will go a long way too with just understanding what is going on with his mindset. All right,
1: Ben. Well, let's also, talk about one more thing on this. It's I think it's also worth pointing out um, the, the guys that are making, and this just occurred to me when you said quarterback money. Uh, Joey Bosa is making quarterback money in part because Justin Herbert is not. Uh, Miles Garrett, second highest paid pass rusher in the league, making $25 million a year because Baker Mayfield is not. Uh, Khalil Mack, 23 and a half, is, is next among the edge rushers. Uh, they don't have a big quarterback bill. The The Cowboys are, are the first exception. That's DeMarcus Lawrence at 21 a year, and now they're paying Dak Prescott. But they did the DeMarcus Lawrence deal before they did Prescott's. Frank Clark at 20 million. So there are only a couple players that are north of 25, and even really north significantly north of 20 and among edge rushers and all of those teams have cheap quarterback bills at the moment. So it's part of, it's just worth considering as part of the overall financial picture, because a lot of this question the Vikings have coming with Kirk cousins is, can we pay him what we have to pay him to keep him around and then do the rest of the things that we want to do. And this is a spot where some of these things come to a head.
0: All right, let's talk about some of the players who were there. Uh, we have a lot of observations coming off the Vikings OTA on Wednesday, the first open two reporters. We ended up seeing an offensive line shuffle a little bit, defensive line, the new look defensive line with Michael Pierce on the field for the first time for the Vikings this week uh, in terms of 11-on-11 11 11 practices, which is what NFL rules allow now. Um, Dalvin Tomlinson as well joining that group. Uh, Steven Weatherly, DJ Wanham working at defensive ends without Daniil Hunter there. Um, uh, Ben, what was, what was your biggest takeaway, I guess, because on the offensive line, we saw Ezra Cleveland move over to the left side. We see Dakota Dozier move over to the right side. So last yeah. year, last year's two starting guards switch spots. They're not giving the rookies any one reps, first team reps right away. We're seeing Christian Derisaw, Wyatt Davis. Both of those guys are working with the second team offense right now. And in Vikings fashion, uh, Kellen Mond, another rookie, is working with the third-team offense behind Nate Stanley and Jake Browning. I believe Clint Kubiak said yesterday, we got to have them earn their stripes. And so they're not throwing those guys in with the starters right away. But we do assume that offensive line is going to look a lot different come week one than what we saw on Wednesday.
1: Yeah, and that would be, I guess, my big takeaway. I mean, I suppose it's not a takeaway in the sense that it's not based on what we saw on the field. But it is sort of related to that in the sense that i would say don't put too much stock in what we did see on the field yesterday because there is a history of this with them where i it was anthony barr i can remember that where you know they talked in the draft about he comes in as a starter and then initially he's not taking first team reps and they kind of do this thing well they, you know we got to see him earn it but by the middle of training camp he was taking reps of the ones and, and never looked back and they played it a little slower with Eric Hendricks. They still had Gerald Hodges, but as soon as they traded Hodges in October, which they obviously figured they could do, they made Kendricks a starter and obviously haven't looked back since then. So I think this process of Rashad Hill as your left tackle. And some of the other things we saw yesterday is, is a, is a holding pattern until we see what they're really going to do. I, they, I think, There's no reason to think that Christian Derrissaw won't be the left tackle. There's no reason to think that Wyatt Davis, if he does a good job in training camp, won't be starting at guard. You know, I I think that's just a matter of time. And frankly, this time of year, until you put pads on, it is a little hard to evaluate how good your offensive line are going to be anyway. So when you're trying to make some of these decisions with the young players, it's probably not worth – Giving them the sense that I don't have to do anything to earn this job. It, it's a it's a perfect time of year to set the expectation of I still got to come in and 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 do my job to get where I want to be, rather than just saying oh we're going to give it to you. Um, especially because you you can't evaluate a lot at that position this time of year anyway.
0: I did find it interesting, though, that they switched the two starting guards and Clint Kubiak had said, look, they got to move around in season anyway with injuries and stuff. So why not try it out now? Um, I'm not saying that that's not true. But at the same time, I could see them wanting to move Ezra Cleveland to the left side and understanding that, okay, Wyatt Davis was a right guard at Ohio State most recently. Uh, we might not want to be starting an all-rookie left side of the line if it's Darasaw yeah. and Davis potentially in that lineup on the left side. So in Cleveland, we know left, left tackle at Boise State, already well-versed at playing on the left side of the line. Why not move him over right now in May, get him a little comfortable on that left side with the you know kind of presumption that moving forward, there could be the competition at right guard where you have Dakota Dozier versus Wyatt Davis and saying, all right, Davis could potentially start eventually at that right guard spot, which was his college position, um, next to Brian O'Neill, next to Garrett Bradbury on that right side. To me, that's that move signaled a little to me of like, okay, they're, they would rather maybe have that competition be at right guard as opposed yeah. to left guard.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair, and I think you're probably more stable on the right side anyway, with Brian O'Neill being at right tackle and Garrett Bradbury's – is on either side, but they've also talked about wanting bigger people next to Bradbury. And typically, if you're going to put strength on your line, you want it on the right side because teams like to run the ball to the right more often than they do to the left. And, and typically, that's where you build your size on your line. Now, saw is going to be the left tackle. That's a different story. But I, you know, I can think back to the, the heyday of. Vikings running games behind a a functional offensive line. It was Phil Loadhole on the right tackle. It was Brandon Fusco playing over there. It was John Sullivan and then Jerome Felton, Adrian Peterson. I mean, that's what, when you and I started on this beat, that's what we were watching. And that was, we are going to put all of our beef on this side and we're going to run the ball this way and we're going to run it down your throat. So there is that thought process of, if we want to be physical, especially doing it on the right side of the line makes some sense. And you don't have that with Brian O'Neill. So adding some of it with, with Wyatt Davis, I can certainly see where that could be a a viable strategy going forward.
0: Yeah. It wouldn't be too much of a shock if we saw both of those guys starting early in the season with Derisaw and Davis, Um, you know, Davis maybe might take a little bit longer, but I think Derisaw walks in as an expected week one starter at left tackle with Rashad Hill stepping back into that swing role. Um, Ben, on the defensive line, we saw Michael Pierce, Dalvin Tomlinson. Like I mentioned, we saw Weatherly and Wanham lining up. We saw Anthony Barr coming off the edge um, in these 11-on-11 sessions. Uh, What was interesting to me, though, is we saw the defensive line shifts a little bit, and we saw Stephen Weatherly standing up. We saw DJ Wanham shifting inside. We saw more of a 3-4 alignment. Now, last time we heard from Mike Zimmer talking about defensive scheme was at the end of March, when he talked about, we need to change some, th- some things yeah. schematically. Yeah. Now that might be also reflective of their coverage responsibilities. Cause he said, a lot of times teams are making us think too much and they're, they're, you know, cause we got to adjust things on the fly. And so maybe with a younger secondary, they don't want to continue to do that. But I do wonder if we're going to see some differences up front as well. Now that you have some, a lot bigger bodies in the middle that you could maybe plug in a three, four up front with Tomlinson, Pierce, um, we saw Wanham put his hand in the dirt and shift inside too. And then we saw, like I said, Weatherly and Barr standing up off the edges. Now the Vikings have already done um, these kind of diamond and three, four fronts in the past where they mm-hmm. stand up to Hunter and Barr, And presumably that's what they're going to want when Daniel Hunter comes back to this team. Um, I'm very curious to see how these defensive changes that Mike Zimmer talks about, how they manifest and Zimmer We've heard it. He often talks about how this is the time of year when I can try to see what we can do differently on defense and how last year when they didn't have that, he felt like he was a little hamstrung in terms of not being able to adjust and really um, get a good grip for what guys can understand when they reported for the first time at the end of July last year. And so, I I don't know. Ben, what are you thinking about where this defense is at and kind of where it could go uh, based on what we saw yesterday? You know, I'm
1: with you in the sense that we do see this being the time of year a lot of times where it's Mike Zimmer out his bag of tricks and let me see what this looks like, or let me see what happens if we move this guy to this spot. And then a lot of times when the season rolls around, it's sort of back to a lot of the same things. Now he has done some of the, a lot of those three, three, five packages. We've, we've seen probably more in the last couple of years than we did early in his tenure when it was pretty much straight four down or, four down linemen, uh, almost all the time. And it's still going to be that by default, but I think certainly this time of year is when he likes to play and and mix and match and not all of this stuff will make its way into the final defensive install when they, when they do it in training camp. So, um, some of it could, it's worth keeping an eye on. It's, it's interesting to just see what they toy around with, but he's, He kind of knows where he wants to build his defense a lot of times. And I think more often than not, when it comes to the season, we see him hang on to a lot of those things.
0: Yeah, we still saw plenty of the double-A gap stuff in practice yesterday, too. So, yeah, I mean, there's going to be the staples that Mike Zimmer always leans on. And, again, I think some of the schematic changes might be a lot more subtle than the things we can't see in terms of how they decide to draw up their coverages, how they decide to draw up their adjustments. Those are all things that only the guys who are in these meetings can truly know. Um, but I just found it interesting that we did see this this defensive personnel, the front seven, move around a little more. Yeah. Um, we did not see Eric Kendricks on the field during 11-on-11s. Um, we saw basically every other veteran who was present participating in these full team sessions. Um, but I, I do find it interesting that in a, in a time where players around the league are negotiating with, with their own coaches on some of these off-season changes in terms of – Hey, let's be in the building less. Let's do on, let's do le- less on field work. Um, we had mentioned on the last podcast, you know, you got the Packers shortening their offseason program. You got the Dolphins doing the mandatory flip-flops, that kind of stuff. Um, all, all we're seeing with the Vikings is they they decided to take off the helmets for portions of practices. Um, ben, you wrote about the kind of leather, these like rugby leather style helmets yeah, that they got. soft
1: gel. Things and I, I think if, if the ears are what I think they are, um, I think it's those guardian soft shell things that you can actually wear underneath a, a regular helmet to make it more padded and, and uh, ostensibly more pliable. But they're just wearing these instead of keeping their regular helmet on, too. So I think that's what they are,
0: yeah. And, and Clint Kubiak put kind of voice to it and saying that it really controls the tempo up front. <laughs> well, he did. I thought he did in terms of it. He said it, it controls the tempo, which means that you're not having your offensive and defensive linemen run into each other and butt heads. Because if you have a helmet on, you're feeling secure. You're feeling like we can kind of force our head into it a little more. And I think the Vikings players uh, and, and Mike Zimmer decided to take that kind of thing out of it. And when you don't have a face mask, you're not going to butt heads. And so that's just one little adjustment that they made. But um, I'd also heard that the Vikings are spending less time in the building. So I, I wonder if they're having continuing to have some virtual meetings yeah. as opposed to all the in-person meetings. Um, that might be one adjustment they're making too. But the on-field work seems to be remaining the exact same as what it was scheduled out to be in terms of the amount of OTAs, the mandatory minicamp. Um, unlike other teams, the Vikings aren't giving up on-field practice time in May and June. And like we had mentioned before, I just don't see that Mike Zimmer being the kind of guy who says, all right, yeah, let's take off early schools out for summer a little <laughs> bit, a little bit earlier. Um, ben, the last thing I wanted to talk about here with the OTAs we saw was another thing that Clint Kubiak said. Now he's no, he's no Gary Kubiak, but uh, Clint did come out there and mention that um, with the talk of like, who's going to be wide receiver number three, I found it interesting. He had said it might be a tight end. It might be a running yep. back. Like w- This is still going to be an offense that runs through, two tight ends with now with Irv Smith and Tyler Conklin, it's still going to run through a fullback with CJ ham. And that means that all the chatter you're going to hear all summer about who's wide receiver three. I think it's going to matter just as much as it did last year when they had the fourth ranked offense, which is not much at all.
1: And it was Chad BB. Yeah. yeah,
0: no. I... And, and it's just not mattering because yeah, they're not going to get much playing time or many targets.
1: Yeah. And then when they're a restricted free agent, they get a, they don't get a tender. So, I mean, it tells you how much they value the guy that was their wide receiver three last year. So, yeah, I until we see some evidence that the personnel usage is going to change dramatically, there's probably not a lot of reason to worry about it a whole lot. Um, but we we really are, like, uh, attempt to keep perspective on these things really is kind of boring. I mean, <laughs> we just want to apologize. We, we try to you know, keep things grounded in reality as much as that we can. And we realize it's not the most fun off season chatter, but um, if you're looking for that type of thing and you've been listening this long, you probably already know that. So (laughs) um, I do think though, that their their tight end group allows them to be a little more flexible this year. If you're figuring it's mostly Irv Smith and Tyler Conklin. So I I would expect that you can, be a little more versatile with those guys than if you're giving Kyle Rudolph quite as much playing time. So maybe it works out that way. I think in general, until you see them open up and have more 11 personnel, it's not worth assuming that that's going to be a huge issue for them going forward.
0: We did see the Biebs running with the ones when they did go three wide. So he he still might be end up being wide receiver three because they got the same same guys coming back. Um, they did obviously add Amir Smith-Marset out of Iowa. And so they've got another option there to potentially get some playing time. But we'll have to see how that manifests down the road. Guys, we do have some Twitter questions. We will get to those eventually on another podcast. Um, please keep sending them on Twitter or to my email. Uh, on Twitter, it's at Andrew underscore Kramer. That's K-R-A-M-M-E-R. And to Ben Gessling, that's at Gesslingstrib. Strib. All right, guys. Well, let's um, move on to an interview here with Jeremiah Searles. I caught up with the former Vikings offensive lineman recently, and we'll get to hear what he's up to and what he thinks of the current Vikings team. Man, how about you? Too bad, just on the road, headed back to Lincoln. Oh, very nice. Yeah, I saw you were in Minnesota recently. Is that right?
2: Yeah, that's where I'm coming back from. I went uh, up to St. Cloud to see my tattoo artist and get my
0: sleeve finished up. Oh, that was looking pretty slick too. I, I saw that on social media. What? uh yeah. What inspired all that? So I have a half sleeve, which is my life
2: verse, my Bible verse, which is Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, And then my wife's my wedding verse, which is Ecclesiastes 4, 12. And then kind of my verse for football and like my competitiveness, which is uh, 1 Corinthians 9 to 24. And then I got my son's life verse, which is Joshua 1, 9. And then my daughter's life verse, which is Psalm 94,
0: 1. You got the, the tie to St. Cloud still here, I suppose, from being in Minnesota all those years. Yep. It's the guy. I
2: mean, I've met up with him. i played up here, and he does phenomenal work. So I made the drive literally just to see
0: him. I wanted to catch up with you because I hadn't seen you since the Combine back in, you know, before the pandemic. Um, yep. Well, I saw you working for Husker Sports Network and and um, yep. doing that stuff. Are you still trying to get into the agent game, too, or how did that pan out?
2: Yeah, so last year it, it kind of went to the wayside last year because of COVID. Uh, I was supposed to take the exam in the end of July, but they essentially canceled it completely. So I actually just got the email a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to be taking the agent exam at the end of July this year uh, to become certified uh, contract advisor, and then hopefully start trying to sign some guys this upcoming
0: winter. So what what kind of keeps you going on that path? Like why are you so interested in doing that?
2: Yeah, so I think that the agent world is its a very interesting world, to put it lightly. I think that there's good agents, there's really good agents, and then there's also bad and really bad agents. And when you're coming out of college, it's really hard to decipher through that because you don't have any knowledge of what the agent world is. And I saw multiple guys throughout my time in the league that had all the talent in the world, But for whatever reason, their career never took that next step because I felt like they weren't either prepared well for life in the NFL or they just had the wrong people in their ears telling them bad information. And for me, the NFL has given me so much to support my family, for my career and all of it that I want to make sure that everyone that has a shot in the NFL is surrounded with the right support system and that starts with your agent. So that's really the main reason I got in, is to help kids have successful times and successful careers in the NFL. Yeah,
0: and your agent, Chris Giddings, did, do you feel like he kind of helped kind of form your your path out of football here? Because I think you stepped away from the game, and was it, was it 2020 or 2019? 2019 um, is when I got my last injury that
2: caused me to have to retire. And yeah, I mean, the thing that I always admired and loved about Chris is, yes, he was very much business-oriented when it was contract time or we were talking transaction stuff and when I needed help with the NFL. But it was also a personal relationship. And I felt like that was incredible for him. In our first meeting, we ever sat down with he goes, look, I'm, I'm here to be your agent but your careers only hopefully six to 10 years long. Like, I want to be your agent and someone that's your friend and helps you with things down the road for the rest of your life. And I thought that that really resonated a lot with me and so that's kind of the same way as I want to help guys in their life transition into the NFL, transition out into the
0: next career path, whatever that might be. Anything I can do to help with that stuff is all stuff that I want to be involved in. Yeah, and I think your first step out of the NFL wasn't that to, to kind of get into the media game to go on the dark side of things, right? <laughs> yeah, so um, I, I am. I do
2: currently work for the Husker Sports Network. I think it's going to be changed to the Huskers Radio Network. I'm not sure. Mm. Um But I I do cover Husker football down in Nebraska. I love it. Um, I don't think I have any aspirations to go any higher than just local Husker football because I don't see myself wanting to work for ESPN or any of that. But I think that being in the media world also dovetails really well with the agent world because it gives me the ability to say, like, hey, I can train my players and my athletes on media training and what to say what not to say, how to treat media guys with
0: respect and understand that, they also have a job to do, but they're also there. But also keep them at arm's distance. No offense, there, Andrew. <laughs> um, but I think that that's all good stuff that I can help with. And it also it shows that I, I'm an analyst of college football. I know how to look and watch and break down college football probably better than most agents. And so that also helps me with uh, the ability to look at players and be like, hey, I think that this guy can play in the NFL or this guy can't, and we go back and forth with that. So are you doing like color commentary for games, or what what exactly is your role? So right now,
2: um, I'm not doing color. I would love to eventually, but I think I'll do some pre-game, post-game, and possible um, do some stuff during the game. We're not sure. We haven't really defined what my role is going to be. We know it's going to expand this year, um, so we're not 100% sure what that looks like, but absolutely post um, and pre, and hopefully doing some interviews and stuff.
0: And what's your favorite part about that? Is it just be, obviously you love the program? Uh, you went to Nebraska, and anybody who follows you knows that. Um, what, what about that kind of job do you kind of take to? Is it just being around the game still? It's been around the game, but also I, I've always
2: been an X's and
0: O's guy. Mm. Um, I always loved breaking down film, looking at film,
2: understanding what went wrong, like what one guy or what one scheme schematically didn't work out on this time, which is why this play failed or around why this play was so successful. And so I think I have, a at least people have told me, that I do a really nice job articulating that um, on, like, radio or TV or whatever it might be, and that people really respond well to the – they love Tony Romo because he's so good in the booth because he talks football, right? And so I kind of bring that aspect to the Husker world of I understand the game on a very different level than most people that – watched because I lived it not just Husker but NFL and so I bring really good football knowledge and I can really relate the football knowledge to the average football fan that makes them feel like they really can get a grasping concept of it and I love kind of bridging that gap. that's
0: well, interesting you bring up Romo because I think that's yeah that's the one everybody thinks of um what do you think of just broadcasting in general nowadays when you turn on a game because I know I talked to a lot of former players who say I, I mute the television when I watch games because they just can't stand to listen to some of the stuff that's said from guys who you know might not know as much as a Tony Romo or a, or a Jeremiah Searles who played in the NFL for five years. Um I mean, do you do you like to see former players like Romo kind of get that shot and kind of bring that expertise to the game? Absolutely, I think I think that I love I I'm with you. I mute a lot of guys because I'll hear them say things and be like you
2: that's not what just happened that is absolutely incorrect and I drives me insane. Um, but, like, I think that a good commentator or good color guy or someone like that can really just enhance the overall viewing experience of a game or can really put a detriment on it. So I think that I want to bring a good product to Husker fans because I love the Husker program and I love the Husker faithful. And so I want to help with that. But, yeah, there's definitely there's definitely certain guys that I, I hit the mute button. Like.
0: <laughs> uh, an offensive line, that's – that's got to be one of the toughest ones for an outsider speaking as an outsider. It's one of the toughest ones to understand what happened because there's so many moving parts. You do have no idea what guys are being coached to do if you're on the outside of it. Um, so it's like, that's that maybe offensive line and what you're bringing is one of the most needed things in that profession because it's one of the most misunderstood parts of the game. No.
2: Yeah. That, and it's one of the hardest things to watch via TV or on the radio, right? Like you can't, it's really easy to say, wow, that guy ran a really fast route and ran right by the corner, and the quarterback put a great ball on him because that's what you see through the broadcast. But it's hard to see, like, man, did you see that stunt those guys just picked up or the way they hit that blitz in the face? That, like, Did you see the way that offensive lineman reached that guy or did you see how they didn't do that, which is what led to the sack or the pressure that led to the interception, right? Like, I love bringing that other piece to the game of the O-line, D-line. It happens in an instant. It happens in a matter of a second or two, but it has such a huge outcome on the entire play and throughout the entire game of, like, the game within the game. It's not between five guys on the offense and four guys on the D-linemen. Like, each
0: play is a game within a game. And, like, breaking that down for me has been super fun. Well, what else have you been up to in your post-playing career outside of the job stuff? How do you fill the time?
2: Yeah, so I got two kiddos now, which absolutely fills the time. I got a two year old boy who's an absolute wild child. <laughs> and then I have a two month old baby girl. Um, and then I have three dogs that keep me busy. But the big thing for me uh, in the fall is I'm a huge hunter. So getting my falls back and being able to go deer hunting and elk hunting and wild waterfowl hunting is my love. Uh, being able to get out and do all that kind of stuff has been really fun for me.
0: Does that bring you up to Minnesota at all? Or you got plenty of hunting down in Nebraska?
2: I got plenty of hunting down in Nebraska. I'm always looking for. Places Honda, so I mean, I'm always well, it's no problem for me. I'll travel and bring my gun anywhere. Um, but uh, another piece is I do a podcast every week in Minnesota during the season with uh, Matthew Collier on Purple Insider, it's called Tuesday Morning Left Guard. Little play on words for Monday Morning Quarterback. But uh, we like to, I like to stay involved with the Vikings still too because uh, I do. I don't know a ton of guys up there, but I spent most of my career three years of my career in minnesota and so i definitely have a love for the purple and gold still too
0: when you look at kind of the vikings we god we talk so much about the o-line when when you were here it's just a, a lightning rod for fans for media and here four or five years later you know we're still talking about it the vikings draft two offensive linemen early they're still trying to repair that um i guess just going back to your time though in minnesota you you played I think you started fourteen games here across, you know, three different seasons. Um, what what was it like being a member of that line that's talked about so much? Yeah, so I mean my first year there twenty fifteen, started the same
2: 5-17 game, which never happens, right? Um then twenty sixteen we we wore we wore that. We went the full offs way. I think we started like thirteen guys in seventeen games or something crazy like that. Um And so just being around in the next year of the NFC Championship run, we mix and match some. I started something tackle, something guard, and Boone was hurt, Easton was hurt, Berger played everywhere. And it it always seems like the O-line's a big focal point, but I think that it's just something you wear as a a badge of honor, as a Viking offensive lineman. As you know, there's going to be a lot of eyes on you, and you want to perform to the best of your ability that you can every single week. And I really like the two draft picks that they picked up for the offensive line at Minnesota this year.
0: Yeah, what do you know about it? I mean, do you, do you pay much attention to the college and the pre-draft process? Like, what do you know about those guys, I guess specifically Derrissaw coming in? Yeah, so um,
2: with the agent gig, like, I watch a lot of tape looking for talent, and, I mean, I saw Derrissaw on tape, and you just look at him, and you're like, yep, that's an NFL left Like, he just, the way he moves, the way that his ability of pass protection to stay square and use his hands really well is obviously there's going to be an adjustment period, but I think that he's a – true tackle in the NFL, which you don't see much in Ben lately has been like draft these kind of tweener tackles and make them really good guards. But I think sauce a guy that's gonna be an outstanding left tackle for the Vikings and hopefully a staple there. Again, he's got a lot to prove and on paper he looks at it. on college he did really well, but it's a whole different ball game when you step out there and you're facing the Everson grippers the Griffins, the Cameron Jordans, the the crazies of the world, right?
0: And so I think that I'm looking forward to see what you can do there a preseason. And when you were here in Minnesota playing for the Vikings, I mean, they went through so many different changes in terms of offensive coordinators. I mean, they were still doing that up until recently. Um, what do you think when you see a, a team that seems to have settled finally in a system and, and all yeah. that stuff that they do? Yeah, I mean, so much of people don't understand. Like, Just because an
2: offensive lineman is extremely good doesn't necessarily mean he fits your system. Um, And when you look at the Viking system, they're a zone-block play-action system. So they're looking for athletic offensive linemen that can run and move, and Darasau's definitely one of those guys. But again, if you're switching coordinators, and one coordinator's like, hey, we're going to pass the ball 60 times a game, and the other coordinator's like, well, no, we're a a duo, double-team, downhill, run-the-ball team, and then you get another coordinator that's like, no, we're a zone-blocking, play-action, spread-them-out-and-run-them type of team that you can have good offensive linemen that just don't fit your system really well. It just doesn't, it doesn't put them in the best position to succeed. And so now that you've got a coordinator for two, three years now, same system going in, same quarterback, like the more consistency you can get, the more you'll start to define what's your system and what you're good at. And you start grabbing players in free agency, you grab players throughout the draft process that fit your system. And you know that this player can grow and be a really good player in your system and so I think that that's really going to start to see guys start taking big developments big like leaps not just small little like hackaways at it but uh, year after year getting better and better more comfortable the system and just redefining those skills that they're already good at
0: well for you personally how hard was it kind of bouncing between those systems I think you mentioned yeah three different ones and I'm sure you had all three of them here in Minnesota
2: yeah it's just hard because lingo changes and what certain coordinators want out of certain run plays are different and certain pass protections are different. And it's really hard when you're just trying to kind of find that mold, especially when North left midseason, that was definitely uh, that was a tough transition. But I think that, again, it's offensive linemen or consistent beings. We, like, we don't like change. Um, we like just being told, hey, this is the way you do it. This is how you're supposed to do it. Now go do it and just do it really well. And then just keep hacking them. Um, when you start trying to change things
0: up on us, we get a little little ornery. Um Well, I guess I wanted to ask you about the Vikings' just situation in general right now. Um, outside of the O-line, what do you think about the direction this, this team is headed in? You know, I'm excited to see the bounce back that this defense has.
2: Um, the, that's the thing that everyone's going to be looking at, right? I mean, Zimmer's a defensive genius. I thoroughly believe that. It, I felt like last year he was trying to play chess with checkers pieces a few times. Because he didn't have all the pieces to the puzzle that he likes to have. So I mean, he definitely fixed it. And he got different guys that he wants in there. And get Barr and Kendricks and all those guys back healthy. It'll be huge. And uh, the one thing that I do worry about, and it seems like this is the other piece that we always talk about in Viking wave is the corners. Uh, I mean, Mike Hughes now gone. You got Gladney, who's probably not going to make it back. You got Patrick Peterson. And you got Harrison. And it's kind of like, okay, um, Mackenzie Alexander, he came back, right? Yeah, yep, he got signed to a one yeah, so deal. So you got Mackenzie back, so now you're just kind of like, okay, who's going to emerge and who's going to be able to really step up there? So defensively, I think we'll be back up to where we're used to seeing it. And then offensively, man, the weapons are there. The weapons are Jefferson Thielen, who emerges as number three. It's going to be a big thing for wide receiver, but you're going to ride Dalvin Cook as far as he can go. Um, and my biggest thing... And like looking at the Vikings is you just don't want a Christian McCaffrey situation, right, where he has an unbelievable year, but it just beats him down so much that the next year he just really struggles to stay healthy. Um, so I really hope that they can take some of the load off Dalvin so that they can continue the longevity of his career, but also he's such a weapon. You want to make sure he's healthy for all 17, 16 games, whatever it is now.
0: Yeah, I mean they get and they have a third round pick behind him in Madison, but they don't use him that much. You would just think that they'd have to maybe balance that out a little bit, um, right? Yeah, well, I guess um, beyond that, that the quarterback situation is talked about a lot. They take a third round quarter quarterback and Kellen Mond, they bring him in behind Kirk Cousins. I don't think you ended up playing a game with Kirk. So, so what did you think just from watching afar then about Kirk Cousins and just his standing with the team right now? You know, I've, heard, I've never found someone that has something bad to say about. Um, And I think that goes a long way. I think that he's
2: a very, very good quarterback in the NFL. I think that sometimes he gets gets a tough rap because of his personality. As much as it's great, it's good. People are like, where's that killer? We want that killer Tom Brady instinct, right? Mm -hmm. So that's square peg, round hole. Um, That's not who Kirk is. So I think that having him be
0: the leader of this team, I think he's definitely got all the skills and everything he needs to do. His biggest thing for me
2: is, as I watch Kirk, it's like I feel like there's some games where you're watching and you're like, where's Kirk at? Like, he's – this is not – like, he's not here. Like, it, like the Indianapolis game comes to mind this hmm. past year, right? Like, this is – and I think that's the biggest thing. Is he's not – he's phenomenal, but he's not phenomenal for 16 games. And that's what makes a great quarterback a great quarterback. So I'd like to see just more consistency out of him. But I think it's good you draft a young guy let him develop under a quarterback that's cut his teeth in two different programs, been through a lot, knows how to play the game the right way, and really start grooming for the future. Because I think everyone knows Kirk Cousins is not going to be the twenty-year
0: Viking quarterback that everyone uh, hopes and dreams that everyone's going to be. Yeah, and if you're a member of that team right now, I mean, does that say anything to you about the future of the team? Or I guess does it say anything to you that you didn't already know if you're part of no, that team? No, absolutely not. I think everyone knows that you're you're always looking to
2: get younger. And if you really look at the recipe for success for a lot of teams is if you can get a quarterback that's very successful on a rookie contract for his first five years, it allows you to do a lot of other things on your team as far as salary cap money-wise to put big pieces around him. You. you look at Josh Allen. You look at Baker Mayfield. You look at Patrick Mahomes when they made the runs. like They're still on those smaller contracts. So, you can build the team around them. So, if you got, even if Kellerman sits for two years and then takes the reins over, he's still got potentially two years left on that rookie deal before you'd have to extend him, which gives you a chance to spend more money elsewhere.
0: Um, Well, Jeremiah, is there anything else you wanted to add about the Vikings?
2: No, I'm excited to see where they, they come out this year. I'll be following them and doing our podcast.
0: Well, before we, um, before I let you go, I, I read something about you um, working with a nonprofit, um, or at least trying to help out a nonprofit, in Tyson's Treasures um, uh, yep. that kind of helps fight pediatric brain cancer. What are you doing for them?
2: Yeah, so I'm actually on the board of directors for that uh, that charity, for Tyson's Treasure Chest. We have a golf tournament every year that we actually just launched two days ago. We opened registration, we sold out within 48 hours. So. Wow. That was really
0: exciting to see and get sponsors and getting that going and we're looking at maybe getting a bowling event but it's a foundation that i've been involved
2: with since its inception um, i actually was the one who got to tour around young tyson he came to the husker stadium and we took him for a tour before he passed away and of pediatric brain cancer and i've been involved with the family ever since and so it's just one of those things that is being on the board and my wife and i are actually both on the board of helping raise money to fight a horrible disease
0: I'll let you get back to the drive, Jeremiah, but um, thank you so much for taking the time to join. I really do appreciate it.
2: Hey, yeah, absolutely, man. appreciate you reaching out. You have my number now, so hit me up anytime.
0: Maybe you should get off the podcast.